In regards to the Thunder Warriors and their rapid ebbing from Terran history, most lore and stories can be disregarded as myths interpretations at best, lies and falsehoods at worst. However, despite the shroud of mystery that surrounds those soldiers of old, one tale of their demise is mentioned over and over in stories told by the nomadic tribes surrounding Mount Ararat. As the weary yet victorious Thunder Warriors returned to the mountain, a group of unknown warriors awaited their return. Upon their meeting, the Thunder Warriors were not met with salutes and congratulations, but rather a hail of bolter rounds and plasma. In these tales told around the campfires, this new army is described as clad in all gray, dark as the clouds of a storm, and branded all as one. It could be speculated that this event was the initial mission of the Emperor's First Legion, for these warriors all bore the numeral one upon their armor, and of course the fact that many missions and theaters of the uncrowned princes were frequently removed from the records of the Imperium of Man. There is no physical trace of evidence in the Imperial Palace archives that can tell us for certain of the events that took place on Mount Ararat. However, anecdotal stories in the late years of the Great Crusade tell of their near-obsessive preoccupation of locating and destroying the few handful of Thunder Warriors that had scattered throughout the Imperium and beyond, over and above the Imperial Court's standing orders regarding renegades. On three known occasions, Dark Angel fleets have changed course on the mere rumor of Thunder Warrior survivors in order to engage and eliminate. These stories insinuate an almost personal vendetta. However, with the secrecy of the First Legion, we may never know the truth. Hello and welcome to another episode of Heresy Grad School, Dark Angels. I'm Jesse, I'm your guest lecturer for this series, and I'm here with David, Pat, and Jason. Hey guys. Hey. What's going on, dudes? This is uh, episode two of our Dark Angels coverage of Book Nine Crusade, and starting off with a retelling of one of the boxes on page 85, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. branded all as one. Which is really cool because it syncs up um, with the story we know from Valdor. We talked a little bit about Valdor and um, a couple other books. I think Saturnine was featured in there. But we, we talked about sort of how the Black Library and Forge World, you know, have this ongoing conversation and uh, the lore gets sort of built out from there. And I think it's really cool to see that. Uh, shout out uh, to the the sort of the culmination of the Thunder Warriors extermination in in uh, Valdor. So mm. because that's what happened, right? Yeah, that story is pretty well detailed in that novel, and uh, like I said, the third act spoilers, of course. But <laughs> yeah, and I love the way they sort of make it unreliable from a narrator pr perspective, right? Like, of course, it's shrouded in secrecy because First Legion, Dark Angels, but why would they have changed courses, you know, three times to hunt down uh, stragglers of the Thunder Warriors? Also, how cool is it that there's stragglers of the Thunder Warriors out there in the galaxy that they'd have to, like, hunt down? That's, like... I, I love that because I don't think we've read that book yet. Yeah, not not to mention the obvious parallel of the fall in, in 40K. Yes. Which I thought Definitely. was a, quite an interesting shout out. And uh, also thanks, I believe it was Andrew N. on our Discord who also mentioned about, uh, he asked a question regarding 
No. Is that story told about the disappearance of the night lord or of, of the Thunder Warriors in any of the novels? And yeah, it's in Valdor and it's also mentioned in Book Nine. He was asking if Book Nine uh, supported that theory, and this is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the feedback, Andrew. Um, and to f- definitely to our listeners, if you guys, you know, keep it coming. Um, but uh, we always love to, to read it. We throw it around in the chat and, you know, kick it back and forth. So appreciate that. Get stuck down a couple rabbit holes. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> We're here now. So right. that's the important part. So, um, do we, do we want to get into uh, the Emperor's own Angels of Death? Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, Jason, you want to take it away? I will do my darndest. Alrighty. Alright, guys. So, let's see here. One of the things that jumped out at me most that I think was kind of interesting, uh, starting here on page 86, the Emperor's Own Angels of Death. Uh, the first lines here, this was an honor they would bear throughout the war to unify soul and beyond, a duty that kept them separate from the other legions created in their image. So the thing that kind of sets the first legion apart, more so than you would otherwise maybe think of, is that they are basically the template for everything. Not only that, they're also, as much as they are the template for the other smaller legions that are slowly starting to reach nominal strength, you know, that are really getting geared up to, you know, a usable strength to start off the Great Crusade, the first legion is always sort of kept separate from the others just by the virtue of them being this sort of primogenitor for the rest of the legions. And it's something that could, well, did definitely set them apart. And it probably did a great deal to kind of mold what that original picture of the first legion was. So it said this is a duty they accepted without complaint, and they took pride in it because they were selected for it, uh, that role, even though it was solitary by the emperor. They were his angels of death, a name at the time belonged to just the dark angels. And for almost a decade, they are kind of stuck by themselves in the lightless depths of the edges of the soul system, uh, burning all of these uh, just frozen moons of the outer system and freeing up lost outposts of mankind that are still kind of at the very outermost edges of the soul system. And again, this is the very first footsteps into taking into the stars in the Great Crusade. This is just comparatively very fledgling, you know, empire building inside just of the soul system. Mm-hmm. And this is too where that sort of informal network of specialists within the First Legion. Uh, starts to become the first of the orders we originally know and love uh, before they get dedicated into the different wings. So uh, this goes beyond the wider scope of those hosts 
and a craft honed in the battles at the outer edge of Seoul. And two, this is where some of those more complex, you know, the Dark Angels are very ritualistic. Uh, they love omens, they love ciphers, uh, <laughs> several different types of ciphers. <laughs> um, uh, hey, I, I, I got didn't something. mean to make that pun. There you go. Oh, we have a I laugh track? That. Fantastic. <laughs> right? Oh, actually, sorry, right. listeners. That's really our studio audience. If you want to become part of our studio on- audience, feel free to sign up for our Patreon. Was that good but, enough? <laughs> we can make some. See, out of what's that. entertaining, and one thing we have up on the Big Bang Theory, we're still fun, even if you take the laugh track out. <laughs> Ooh. If you guys have never seen the Big Bang Theory without the laugh track, it is the creepiest thing to ever exist. YouTube it. But. I think most 90s and 2000s comedies are that way. Oh, God, tell me about it. It's so awkward. But anyway. Sorry, I'm getting distracted. Back back to the galaxy burning. Right. So, not only are these orders starting to form, they're also starting to really become entrenched in the way the Legion does war. Because it's not just a way of battle, it's also sort of the ascertaining the weaknesses of each of the foes they're fighting. And they're sort of encoded into the traditions of the orders and basically the secrets of war they're coming across as they develop themselves. They're sort of cataloged into these archives that the First Legion is naturally building. So now, too, interestingly, uh, their armor is no longer that generic flat gray of all the other just numbered legions, but now it's black. And as they return, you know, as uh, bearing the color scheme of the new, what would be eventually the Dark Angels, they don't receive like this proud fanfare. You know, it's not a celebration as they return. They're just returning to sort of this silent approval that the emperor has shown them that they're now sort of the vanguard of the hosts mustered ready to make war upon a hostile galaxy. Just straight up embodying grimdark. Exactly. (laughs) They are almost literally grimdark. Now, um, a little bit later, uh, big giant muster around the shipyards at Saturn. Uh, the fleet granted to the First Legion stood out among the newly built Saturnine pattern vessels and ancient ships reawakened from the macro vaults of Mars. So what's interesting here, the First Legion were granted a tithe of the very few remaining Terran vessels. And all of these, almost all of these craft were absolute relics. They dated back before even old nights. So this is tons of forgotten technology These are uh, relics that have been developed so far back that they're basically from that golden age before everything just went to, you know, galactic hell. And among these, of course, you've got uh, Gloriana-class battleships, you have Promethean-class cruisers, Tiamat-class destroyers, And all of these kind of completely surpass their more modern designs. And in other legions, you're seeing like a handful of some of these ancient relic ships. Mm -hmm. But 
the first legion has an entire fleet of them. So, um, Jason and Dave, because you both are more, um, and again, we may need to bring Austin and Steven onto this at some point, but you guys are more our BFH, BFE, um, or BFG, uh, guys. What is a Promethean class cruiser? I don't think I've ever heard of that until this point. Yeah, we'll have to bring our subject matter experts on that one. Yeah. Um that and that may be something we need to do a deep dive on because I don't I don't even know if we have that in our heresy rules. Either a Promethean class cruiser or a or a Tiamat class destroyer. But but that'd be something to look into. So I actually looked up the Tiamat uh to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, it looks like the same thing with the Promethean too. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, this uh, entry here in Book 9 is the only place that Tiamat and the Promethean have been referenced so far. So I think these are brand new. I would absolutely love to be proven wrong. I feel like I've heard like, Tiamat before, but I could be mistaken as well. I feel like I had too, and I was combing back through like even... I had the um, Rogue Trader First Edition compendium out just leaping <laughs> through it because I could not remember where I'd seen it before. Mm-hmm. But if it exists somewhere else, I have not been able to find it yet. Uh, it's definitely not in the red in the Battlefleet Heresy book we got. Yeah, mm-hmm. go to rr30k.com forward slash something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's there. you can yeah. find it. But I will say, listeners, uh, that's part of your homework for this week. Do some research. Find that stuff out for us, and we'll come yeah, back to you. Find us Promethean Destroyers and, wait, no, Promethean Cruisers and Tiamat Destroyers. They have to exist somewhere. But God, they do sound cool. Just a cruiser covered in void shields and then a right? destroyer that's just studded with weapons. But uh, It yeah. sounds amazing. But... Checking out the rest of the Emperor's own here. So, uh, this is not an idle gift. It's not just something the Emperor is, you know, it's not a participation trophy. Mm. Um, the First Legion are not sitting on their laurels. They are putting these ships to use because as the Great Crusade is getting started, the First Legion are dedicated to eradicating some of the hardest and most monstrous Xenos races they're running across. And out of all of the original Legionis Astartes, they make the most common use of some of the weapons from Old Knight, like Gene Phage weapons, um, Rad Phage, like some of the really nasty stuff that normally you don't think of outside of the Mechanicum. they're using it to wipe out nests of enemies that are too horrendous to be faced in open battle. And the First Legion are sort of this fulcrum that the Emperor is building uh, these attacking forces on. Because they're not just used like the other legions, they're used to absolutely annihilate what needs to be killed. And this is why, starting out, they are... Their little sobriquet is the Angels of Death, 
And even though this will eventually, you know, come to encompass sort of generically all Adeptus Astartes or Legionis Astartes at the time, um, starting out here, that's something that belongs to just the first legion. So even as these other legions are fighting to bring human colonies, you know, discovered by these expeditionary fleets back into compliance, uh, the first legion isn't so much worried about that. The first legion is more tasked with wiping things out instead of bringing things into the Imperium. So they're pretty much hurling themselves into the hardest fighting and the the worst, you know, things they're finding out here on the galaxy. Uh, I really like one of the lines here. Uh, they took war to the dens of monsters and legends without fear or hesitation, shattering the hold of nightmares on the future of mankind. And that's really what they're doing. They're hurling themselves into things that are kind of too hard for any other legion. Uh, they have a couple of examples here of some of the battles that, the few battles that haven't been wiped out with the first, uh, you know, out of the records that the first legion has taken place in. Uh, so one they give here is Beltelgen IV, where the third chapter for mainly of warriors from the hosts of stone and iron assaulted a world whose mountains and crusts had been hollowed out to form a fortress for a swarm creature of protoplasmic and hyperacidic slime. The nucleus of an infection that had spread through the void to infest a dozen worlds and seen millions rendered to little more than nutrient slurry. So hmm. this is right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so two things that I find interesting here. Uh, one, crazy swarm creature that basically sound like sentient acidic amoebas. Uh, but two, third chapter. Uh, it's interesting that they're already using the chapter designations here. Uh, yeah. another, another one of these battles we have... Uh, Let's see, the once verdant worlds of Asi the Osirene Cluster, where the First Legion's 19th Expeditionary Fleet engaged a vast sentient planet killer, a technological abomination spawned by some long-forgotten empire and left to wreak havoc upon an uncaring universe. Uh, now, this one, the record's apparently not, like, sealed too well, because we get a few details, but uh, the record's here sealed by Grandmaster Thrain himself. And these are some of the things they're fighting as the rest of the legions are kind of bringing things back into compliance. So it sounds now, like just an AI planet killer. It's like, yeah, that's that like could be anything like, and everything, <laughs> right? It could be a Death Star, mm -hmm. like just with an AI over. brain stuck to it. Oh God, that would be the worst. Yeah. Just like hovering around in space somewhere, like deleting planets. Yeah. Whew. The fact that it's, a, it's mentions one and vast, so it's big mm -hmm. and it's singular. So it's not like an army of uh, Terminators. <laughs> Which is That's good. That's no moon. <laughs> it's a planet killer. Um, God, that'd be horrifying, though. Because, I mean, I guess, but they have this fleet of that's gifted to them. I guess they have some way to, to destroy them at least. Mm -hmm. uh, now, a few Gloriana class battle cruisers could probably fix that. Right. Just a little. 
Sorry, Jason, go ahead. Oh, no worries. So one of the things that may not be readily apparent, but since the first Legion are engaged with so many of these, you know, sort of sealed uh, missions that just aren't making it into the larger, you know, the Imperium at large, uh, what's interesting is by comparison to some of the other legions, like outside the ranks of the first legion, some of their achievements in the early Great Crusade really seem lacking. So a lot of their triumphs, that a lot of the really impressive things they've done have essentially like, you know, saved the galaxy without anybody knowing. They're shrouded in secrecy because they've been, you know, locked down. And comparatively, it looks like they only have a few handfuls of worlds brought into compliance because hundreds of their actual battles have just been locked down and the details have never gotten out. However, one of the things that they are very uh, widely known for, uh, some of their original key doctrines were originally brought together to help form the original Principia Bellicosa. And that, of course, is, it's almost like, um, kind of like, well, it's the standard by which all Legiones Astartes, you know, sort of their tactical manual, kind mm-hmm. of like a precursor to the Codex Astartes. Mm-hmm. And the tactics from the hosts of the First Legion are what is kind of brought together in large part to develop that. So as they are, you know, hosting, like, hosting as the hosts are making war across all of these battlefields they're not only passing their knowledge on to the battle brothers they're working with but now they're doing so throughout the entirety of these doctrines being created and some that are kind of struggling some that are less effective will slowly like fade out and kind of they describe it here as being ground to extinction by the inexorable hunger of war, which is, you know, kind of a dramatic way of describing those that are less efficient kind of fall to the wayside. But uh, that brings us to the super interesting uh, box on page 87, describing the hosts of the First Legion. Hey, Jason, before you get there, because, I mean... But I think we, we covered some really important material uh, over all of page 86. And I, I just kind of just want to circle back on that. And I think the first part is, um, you know, the, the first legion, uh, which will become the Dark Angels, you know, uh, right now is, and, and I don't think this is sort of crass to say, like, they're making this up as they go. Right. I think this is a very important doctrine. So the way the Space Marines will fight, the way the Space Marines will organize themselves in terms of organizational structure, um, you know, uh, taxonomy, hierarchy, none of that exists right now. I think it's something that we take for granted and it's hard to sort of put ourselves into the mindset of what came before right right we listen i mean we read these stories 40k novels horse heresy novels and the space marine legions are for all intents and purposes really well settled in right as far as they know how to conduct you know planetary compliance stuff of that nature but 
imagine being the first space Marines and not knowing at all what to expect. Right. Being the first, you know, humans more or less to travel the galaxy that we know of in decades, centuries, thousands of years. Yeah. Millennia. Right. And so, I mean, I think this speaks to so much. So, uh, you know, the emperor has set the first legion, a a special quest, right? Um, the emperor, even though he has an enormous amount of foresight, uh, we can get into that, uh, you know, if we need to, but the emperor has sort of set the proto Astartes legion on a special quest. And that is to define doctrine as Mm -hmm. they go out into the galaxy, as they encounter the, the sort of unnumbered threats to species existence how do they develop the doctrine and tactics to counter that threat Uh, which is why they were given you know their pick of a fleet um you know when when you know the expeditionary fleet sort of went to saturn and covered the saturnine fleet and the jovian shipyards and unlock the macro vaults of Mars, right? I mean, there's just so much rich history and just, you know, a few paragraphs on page 86, but it sort of speaks to the, um, the special sort of dispensation that the First Legion gets. Uh, they get to use weaponry that was outlawed uh, during the Unification Wars, right? They get the radphage and the, the virus bombs, right? They get to use all of that. Even the uh, abominable intelligence. <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh no! Really? Um, Exendio. It's it's an AI in a robot oh, body. Right. Don't we have <laughs> rules for that now too? We Jesse? have rules for it. Yeah. Oh god. No model yet, but yeah, <laughs> that's we, awesome. Yeah. But like all the best Forge World models or best uh, 30k models, you really have to kit bash it. Yeah. If you haven't checked out the rules yet, uh, Dave, I'll I'll bring you aside one day and check out the. Exendio class battle automata. It is a pure AI. No, I love that. That's amazing. I will say we do have, um, thanks to the quick thinking of our, our guest lecturers, Steven and Austin, we do have a little bit more info on the Tiamat, just that in book three, it's known as a bastion chip. So that may be related to this is, it stays closer in towards your bigger ships and just provides fire support. It's one of those vague Navy terms that you could, you could fill in anywhere. So just a fun little tidbit. Perfect. Yeah. But the I mean, author we, still stands for our listeners. If they find uh, uncover some other long forgotten lore in some white dwarf number three or something, feel free to right. share it with us. Um, Before we get into the hosts on page 87, which I think is really important uh, as a starting point to understand the sort of organizational structure of of the First Legion, um, throughout the rest of this podcast series, we're going to use some terms that I think you can use them loosely, but in the context of the Dark Angels, you would be... um, sort of ill-informed to do that, right? So they have specific meanings in the context of the Dark Angels. So a host is something, a great host is something, an order is something, orders are something, 
So, and each one of those has sort of nuances and, and niches in, in and of itself. So we're going to try to be very specific, I think, in terms of our um, you know, lex, uh, lexical appropriation, lexic, I don't know. Lexicon. I'm just making, yeah, I'm just making this so up right now. I, and as a side note to that, Dave, have you looked at page 108 and the sidebar or the insert there? Um, I have, but by all means, if you think so, that's... on the bottom, it it kind of relates to the different levels of the Princi- Principia Bellicosa, the Hecatonistica, and the Hexagrammaton, which are other layers of the Dark Angels. So, like with the Principia Bellicosa, uh, you have the Knight Praetor, Knight Commander, Knight Captain, and Knight as kind of most known use titles and ranks. Then of the Hecatonistica, we have the Preceptor, the Seneschal, the Cenobite, and the Adept. And of the Hexagrammaton, you have the Master, the Marshal, the Proctor, and the Initiative. Yeah. So yeah, I thought that was... <laughs> you can I have know, right? so many titles depending on where you are within the ranks. Circles within circles mm-hmm. and, um, you know, layers within layers. And sort of this is the thing about the Dark Angels that I really want to get into because it, it establishes, I think, at the at the essence of who they are, their character. Because um, they're a legion and a brotherhood that's shrouded in secrecy. From the very beginning, the records are sealed. The deeds that they do, the, you know, the the missions that they accomplish on behalf behalf of humanity nobody gets to know even within the order uh you know even within the dark angels themselves the legion um those records are often sealed and only available to a few so i think this starts to establish their character and we can start to see um why they are the way they are, the secrecy that exists. So at the same time that they are every legion, they're no legion. Yeah. They, you know? And it's like when we talk about secrecy, another legion we think about is obviously the Alpha Legion. I feel like the Alpha Legion is a lot of cloak and dagger secrecy. And the Dark Angel's more of a, you didn't see anything, and we'll nuke you just to make sure that you said you didn't see anything. <laughs> Right, right. They present they present an overt face, right? They mm-hmm. are the first legion. They are the dark angels. There's that they still subscribe to the sort of Principia Bellicosa or what will become that, right? The mm-hmm. the chapter, the company, the squad. Um, that uh, you know that tax uh, you know that task organization exi- exists, but then within it. There are all these covert organizations that we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we should probably get into them right now. But yeah. I just want to let—I want to let the listeners know that I think it's a very important uh, in terms of character to understand that um, covert secret societies within an overt organization have specific uh, sort of consequences and. Uh, and I think we're going to see that play out here over the next few chapters. I will say, I've maybe jumping too far ahead, but with this aspect of their circles within circles and aspects, 
is what made it so difficult, well, practically impossible for Horus to corrupt him with his own mucilages because they already had their own uh, societies in place and had no need for it. I was about to say and hypothesize with you, Jesse, about that as to whether or not, you know, that's why that corruption or that form of corruption failed with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mentioned in this this book. Very cool. Yeah, I love it. I think we should get into page 87. Let's do it. You want to kick us off, David? Sure. Um, So page 87 starts at the top with this full-page call-out. It's called The Hosts of the First Legion. In the days before the coming of their Primarch, the hosts of the First Legion were named and organized differently to the wings that were the later creation of Lionel Johnson. The foundation of the doctrine that would lead to the formation of the hosts is often credited to the Emperor himself in the histories of the Legion, a strand of the great plan that he had formed for their first of his legions. The list that follows is reconstructed from the records from 753.m30, a median point in the early history of the First Legion, and shows the main hosts still known to history, which would later be reconfigured into the six wings of the Hexagrammaton. So, I think we're going to play a little game here. Um, Mm. The way I think this would be really fun to do is, since we know the... First Legion is sort of the template for the legions to come, uh, a testbed, if you will, for the doctrine as it evolves and uh, is coalesced into, you know, the Principia Bellicosa. Um, I can take a turn, or Jesse, you can take a turn and read the first host, uh, mm-hmm. and then we'll say who that sounds like. Yeah, and I will say, you mentioned this before we started recording, and it did not click in my brain these parallels. And as I'm reading through them, it's very eerie and I kicking myself for not seeing it before. And it's really cool. So thank you for bringing this up beforehand. Yeah, absolutely, man. This is why we do this. But yeah. So on page 87, we have, let's see, nine different hosts. And starting with the first one, the host of crowns among the oldest of those hosts still known in the record of the first legion being the original core of the First Legion's warriors who had served as champions among the vast hosts of the pre-Unity armies on Terra. The host of crowns specialized as linebreakers and vanguard warriors, experts in the honor duels that had once been a key feature of mankind's wars and icons of victory as much as they were fighters. So a host of champions. This one's a little trickier than some of the others. But you could think of... Almost the Emperor's children in a way. You could think of... I was thinking Ultramarines for some reason. Ultramarines is a very strong one as well. Yeah. Just because I hear honor duels and icons of victory. And Mm -hmm. to me, you know, Gilliman with all of Ultramar, his his tiny little kingdom makes me think of that. But but I could totally Uh, see... Oh, go ahead, Jason. Sorry. So... My thoughts immediately went to the Templar brethren because you know the first oh. um, the first company of the Imperial, Imperial fists, fists, yeah. Because when they were broken off into eventually into the Black Templar, uh, they were essentially the same thing. Like they were completely focused around singular combat. Mm-hmm. So well, what about a line breakers? and vanguard warriors 
the Huskarls, the yeah. second company in the Imperial Fists, are. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I think that's the third company. It's Fafnir Rand's company. Yeah. Which is interesting because the Imperial Fists, the bodyguards for Rogel Dorn, aren't drawn from the first company. They're drawn from uh, Fafnir Rand's companies. Mm. But yeah, uh, so duelists and line breakers are the Templar Brethren and the Phalanx Borders. Steve, what about yourself? Yeah, this is definitely, I think, the most nebulous, and it, it may not be a direct parallel, um, as we'll see in some of the other ones. But, uh, y- you know, I mean, I think the Emperor's Children is a clear one. Um, uh, I think I was actually going to say the Night Lords before they got corrupted and sort of became mm. terror warriors. So maybe not a great parallel there. But um, I don't know, man. I think Jason's got some good arguments for this yeah. one. And also, let's keep in mind, there's only, there are nine hosts here. So with 17 other legions that we know of, this could probably fit into several, because there are parallels between the legions as well, especially between the traitor and the loyalist legions. Right, and as the heresy goes on, they all kind of start blending a little more. Mm-hmm. So who wants to take the next one? I'll take the next one. Okay. The host of blades, the core of the legion as it num- as its numbers grew, and it took to the field as true as a true army. The host of blades were the infantry cohorts that formed the ranks and held against the assault of the foe, the gun lines that threw back their warriors and the bold columns that shattered their lines. They were masters of close-order infantry tactics that were the crux of the early Legiones Astartes' order of battle. Formed around the primacy of the Legion Legion tactical squad and and the principal agent in the development of the first volumes of the Principa Bellicosis. Or Bellicosa, excuse me. See, for this one, it feels a little more similarly matched to the Ultramarines due to their strict and narrow nature. I could totally see that. And Ultramarines have always sounded like close order drills, very straight and forward to the point. I mean, and you know, development of the first volumes of the Principia Bellicosa, which Ultramarines love to write tactics down. So. But also, for some reason, I'm I'm in the back of my head. I don't know why I'm thinking Imperial Fist, but it's the whole idea of like lines of infantry mm-hmm. forming ranks and, and holding against drills. And bolter drills. Yep. Yeah, that's really what what did it for me. See, I have a traitor bias, so I immediately thought Death Guard because their oh. go-to was always the shoulder-to-shoulder advancing inexorable lines of dudes with bolt guns. Yeah. Well, there you, yeah, that works too. We got space in their change. Um, I've, I'm just finishing up lost in the damned right now, but even once they've changed and hit Terra, it's still the same thing. They are very Mm -hmm. much still regimented and still just walking forward across the battlefield. So the next, Oh, go ahead, Dave. No, I think that was a great point by Jason. And I, and I think also the loyalists and traitor legions are all often um, mirror images of themselves, mm. you know, uh, especially before they've sort of completely fallen and in, into corruption, um, damnation. But uh, yeah, man, Death Guard, 100%. So I think 
the host of blades, if it were me, would be the Ultramarines and the Death Guard, 100%. Yeah. So the next ones are going to get pretty uh, singular and pretty obvious which ones they relate to. So, Jason, you want to hit the next one? Oh, sure. Uh, let's see here. We've got the Host of Pentacles. Now little more than a forgotten legend to most, the Host of Pentacles was the earliest attempt to incorporate the War Witches of Old Earth into the line of battle to bring the might of the Psyker to bear upon the foes of mankind. It was a host off-maligned by those its adepts fought alongside, for in its early days there were as many calamities as triumphs for the battle psychers of the First Legion, and in time it would be an experiment that was brought to a close by the Grandmaster of the Legion. So if that's not like a tiny little self-important Nikea, I don't know what is. <laughs> right, and obviously Thousand Suns. I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that one. Oh yeah. But you have little little bites and tastes of word bearers too. That's you know? true too. Oh yeah, that's for a good sure. point. Definitely for sure. Uh, they do suffer a lot of warp calamities. Yeah. I do love the sure. uh the title War Witches of Old Earth. I would love right. to have that as a title of a short story at some point. That sounds like a badass like horror yeah. heresy themed metal band, yeah. right? Yeah. War Witches of Old Earth. Dave, you got any input? No, I mean, obviously Thousand Suns, and it just makes you wonder, you know, where the lion was at Nikea, you know, or his proxy. Um, Well, Nikea was right before the heresy, correct? Pretty soon before. So he was still out on the eastern fringes at that point. Oh, had Mm. they not even... Had they not even found him before the heresy? No, 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 no they did, but he was still out. Like the, he was crusading. Yeah, the uh, mm-hmm. the mission of the Dark Angels to go out to the farthest reaches and kill the scariest stuff was still in order, and the line was out there. That's why he oh, was yeah, no. not around for a lot of stuff. Sure. No, I mean, it, I yes, I say that sort of sar- sarcastically. Why oh, wasn't I, the line there? But I mean, like <laughs> his proxy, right? Like, um, oh, fair. Yeah, like the... The con wasn't there, but he sent, or was the con there? I can't remember now. Um, I, I mean, there I are, there were, was. no, I think yeah, he, he sent was. his, his proxy, right? He sent, mm. he sent, anyway, you know, I'm sure there was some representative from the first Legion, but it just seems like, you know, uh, they had certainly experimented with some of this, which makes you wonder, you know, uh, like what kind of Malkador, Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of good lore threads in here, but for sure. Um, without further ado. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Take the next one. Okay. The host of iron drawn at first from the hardy nomads of the Thulic tribes on old Terra, adapting their ancient traditions to the modern battlefield. The host of iron was expert in the employment of armored vehicles on the field of battle. From the lumbering gun crawlers of old Earth's pre-Unity armies to the war engines designed and built for use by the Emperor's Legionis Astartes, the host of iron would pioneer many of the strategies that underpinned their use on the battlefield. First off, I want a gun crawler model. Um, but I mean, 
let's be honest, this is this is Iron Warriors through and through, right? As far as mechanized warfare, I feel like the Iron Hands also have a oh yeah heads up in that yeah, as well, definitely. And the only reason I contradict that is uh, Pat is because later on I feel like there's a very strong Iron Warriors one as well. Although that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't borrow aspects of the different hosts, obviously. Most definitely. I mean, we've already mentioned like at least three different legions that that can be represented by each one of these so mm-hmm. far. So, for sure. But what, um, Dave and Jason, which ones do you think most would most closely represent the host of iron in this case? For me, my first thought was Iron Hands because on Medusa they have giant crawling cities. Mm. And like all of the, uh, well, most of the clans uh, have like these giant massive crawler cities, uh, which just makes me think of that stupid Mortal Engines movie. <laughs> so, like that, but way, way cooler. Mm. <laughs> like Iron Hands are way cooler than that stupid movie. Hey, hey, some of us enjoyed that movie. Thank you very much because it was stupid. So <laughs> <laughs> my sincere professional condolences. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with, with like that, but cooler. <laughs> mm. All right. You, you oh. heard it here, guys. Uh, early Iron Hands are like that stupid Mortal Engines movie, but, but cooler. cooler. But cooler. <laughs> okay. This is the official stance of the Remembrancer's Retreat. Um, I realize I skipped myself, so I'll take the next one. Uh, the Host of Fire. Among the most secretive of the early hosts, the ranks of the host of fire were filled with spies, assassins, and all the subtle tools of war. In war, it was the eye and bloody left hand of the legion, the first to take to the field in the form of infiltrators and lone invigilators, and the last to draw blood, and its interrogator consuls were widely feared for their talent. Getting a, few, getting a strong uh, Alpha Legion vibe here. But you could also pull some Night Lords into this, too, I feel like. This is true, too. But also, I mean, interrogators are a huge part of the Dark Angels later on, true. right? Mm-hmm. They have the whole interrogator chaplain shtick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and keep in mind that the Fire Wing is one of the main wings of the Legion at this time, too. Mm. Or evolves into the Fire Wing, so they still maintain that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not perfect parallels, but uh, definitely Alpha Legion and I think uh, Raven Guard. I would, yeah. I can see that. Oh, yep, yeah. Yep. All right, Pat. All right. The Host of Bone, sometimes known as the Scandic Host, both for the wild and bloodthirsty tactics that were its pr- preference as well as the primary recruiting grounds of its warriors. The host of bone fought not to break the lines of a single army, but to crush the spirit of the foe entirely, seeking to find the weaknesses that almost all enemies hide and then cut it apart. Reavers without equal, they gave little credence to the noble ideas of civilized warfare and brought the most terrible weapons and tactics to the field of battle. So I have two legions in mind, Mm -hmm. because I mean... Definitely getting a lot of uh, wolves vibes from this. Let's be honest. I was getting some notes of uh, world eaters as well. <laughs> yeah, and world eaters. But there's some sons of Horus in here too. 
there, there's entire, I mean, there's a, a company of reavers mm-hmm. that their whole job is to find a weakness and, and, and exploit it. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, also, no, definitely world eaters and wolves, but go yeah. ahead. Okay. Uh, Jason, David. All right. See, I'm glad we're talking this over. Cause like, I never thought sons of Horus. like my first thought was night Lords. Mm-hmm. Like they're, definitely all about crushing the spirit of the foe entirely oh, um, yeah. and oddly i never thought world leaders either which you really think would be my go-to but so all right i like that's a really you didn't get a world leaders points. out of that it, somehow no like <laughs> bloodthirsty just, tactics didn't like highlight itself to you in so, your mind i was thinking more of a scandic coast <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, that's how you say it. Yeah, yeah. I I think the wolves and the the world eaters they're they're sort of the you know the yin and the yang. Mm-hmm. They they both jumped out at me. Yeah. Cool. Uh, go ahead, Jason. All right. So uh, these guys, the host of Stone, I'm a big fan of because I learned recently it's the only one of the host symbols I can freehand. <laughs> So, uh, experts in the static arts of war, siege, and the destruction of fortifications. The grim demeanor of these warriors is a key feature of many of the most bitter defenses and bloody assaults in the early years of the Great Crusade. For to the adepts of the Host of Stone, all war was but a simple matter of determination. Those that did not yield to the foe, who stood impassive in the face of utter destruction, would find victory, and those who gave way would be crushed underfoot. Yeah, I, right, I, so, I can uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, immediate Iron Warrior vibes, right? Yeah, you can crack open the can and immediately smell the Iron Warrior coming out of this one. So <laughs> fair enough. I regret, and I pull my my bid from the host of Iron to put Iron Warriors on the house of on the host of Stone because <laughs> this is just all them. So one thing I kind of wanted to talk about here, since we had talked about both the Imperial Fists and the Iron Warriors, and I think this kind of highlighted it neatly, and nobody other than Imperial Fists players have I ever like had the same discussion with. Mm. I think it's interesting, because a lot of people, I think, make a sort of erroneous comparison between the Iron Warriors and the Imperial Fists. Like, yes, they were constantly at odds, but I think way too often people kind of portray them as just a the exact same legion except one's a traitor but here with the host of stone i think it underlines a lot of the differences the iron warriors have compared to the imperial fists um i think a reflection like a mirror image is a much better idea because they're not identical they're kind of reversed in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. Like the Iron Warriors are all about destroying fortifications and how to bring them down. The Imperial Fists are about erecting them. Yeah. The Iron Warriors are all about the mathematics of war, where every single warrior is faceless and just a number in that equation, where the Imperial Fists take individual honor like to the extreme, to mm-hmm. the point that their first captain, the only thing he's good at is one-on-one honor duels. <laughs> like Fafnir yeah. Ran even says, like, no, the first captain doesn't know anything about war. He's just a pretty figurehead. <laughs> that is but a great like, line. Right? 
I, that's why Templar is one of my favorite audio dramas of all time. It's like Fafner Ran is the best Imperial Fist because he just straight up says to a human, like, Sigismund doesn't know anything about war, but maybe if he lives long enough and hangs out with me, he'll learn a couple things. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I think it, it even gets reinforced in either um, Saturnine or the First Wall. Um, it's the and First like, Wall, actually. It is. Yeah, yeah, and Fafnir Rand's like, yeah, no, don't send Sigismund. And Rogaldorn's like, yeah, you right. I mean, and for real, though. He, he actually yeah. saves his ass, if I remember correctly, right? No, he does, but... Yeah. He's just... Yeah. Sigismund is not good at it. He's a pretty face for the Legion. Yeah. But he managed to distract Fulgrim for a little bit, so... Yeah. <laughs> good to hear. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to spoil that for you. <laughs> oh, no, no worries. Um, Not quite made it all the way through. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Want to take the next one, Dave? Is this is, uh, the host of Wind? Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, I feel like you guys kind of know where this is going. Skirmishers <laughs> and Cavalry Warriors, the host of Wind, excelled where warfare moved at the speed of the storm. That was their namesake. Experts in the use of light armor and jet bikes, as well as swift assault troops, the Host of Wind enjoyed a reputation as one of the most glorious in the First Legion, though it also bore one of the highest tallies of the, of the dead for its reckless valor. Mm. Yeah, so white scars. Guards, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, just kidding. Go ahead. Uh Obviously, uh, some white scars there and potentially uh, blood angels as well regarding assault troops being swift and whatnot. Yeah, that's a good point. What's the uh, what's the traitor-like parallel to that, Jason? I'm really, really glad you brought this up because <laughs> I love this discussion. I can't stand it when people say Night Lords and Raven Guard are like the two you know, traitor loyalist opposites. I think Night Lords are far more uh, adequately paired to the White Scars, and I'll tell you why. Raven Guard are all about like sneaky stealth. Night Lords are absolutely not about stealth. Like there are tons of times in the books uh, that they will intentionally use stealth only so far as it allows them to make like a terrific entrance. <laughs> um, they are all about. Like, if White Scars were just sadistic, their battle plans would look almost the exact same as the Night Lords, short of, like, you know, skinning people. Yeah, when it comes to stealth... All about, like, those... I mean, it's just kind of like that that loyalist propaganda. Because what's a heroic, like, assault, like, from the host of the wind, if not a lightning terror assault? Just, you know, prettied up a little bit. As far as stealth goes, I would imagine the Night Lords, you you know the Night Lords are there. Probably because oh, yeah. your son has just been blacked out. The stealth <laughs> right. has kind of I mean, gone at that point other than just, you know. There's guys in midnight black falling upon your troops and cackling. Like, I mean, come yeah, on now. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say right, it again, cause... even though the next one kind of embodies, is close to them. But the idea of swift assault troops reminds me of... Um, the uh, the Sons of Horus main tactical doctrine, which is the spearhead or the mm. tip of the spear, 
So. Sorry, Jason, you're saying. Uh, what was I saying? It's been a long night. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Dave, I really appreciate that setup because that's something that frustrates me a little bit. And I really appreciate even um, the war sage, Malkarian, he even says that surprise is a blade that is useless in war. Uh, it breaks as soon as troops rally or commanders hold the line. That's why their entire sort of battle tactics don't revolve around like surprise, like, you know, with the white scars, like surprise, we're here, they shoot some stuff and then they're gone. It survives around using those lightning tactics to create this sense of pervading fear that makes everything break down. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point, Jason. I think, you know, like the, the Night Lords often try to be or appear to be everywhere at once just to sow that confusion, which is very much what the White Scars try to do. So, yeah, I love that. I love that comparison, comparison and sort of um, perspective. All right. I'll cap us off with the final one, the Host of the Void. One of the last hosts to emerge as a major force within the Legion, the Adepts of the Void were matters were masters in the use of teleport assaults from low orbit as well as war amongst the heavens themselves. Shock assault infantry equipped with teleport displacement beacons, shipboard assault cadres, and aircraft pilots were all to be found within the hosts once the First Legion reached the stars in the wake of the wars on Old Earth. This one can be a little bit tricky, too, because we only got a handful that really do a lot of the teleportation uh, tactics. At least endgame, but I'm sure all of them to some extent do. I don't know. I feel like there can be but one. Which one are you thinking? This It's got to be the Sons of Horus. It's a, yeah, it's the 16th. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, other that. legions do teleport assaults. And other legions have aircraft pilots. But, but nobody, yeah, but yeah, the tip of the spear, the, the just you know. yeah, pretty yeah. much You've the got host just of the void. and then shock assault infantry, so reavers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are several scenes shipboard assault cadres, so there, there are multiple scenes with um, on ships of uh, sons of Horus, uh, breachers, and and assault squads. Um, yeah. I know I'm I'm thinking of other legions that that use a lot of teleportation. I'm trying to think. I mean the Imperial Fists do a good job of it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. They yeah. And I mean Rogaldorn is the head of the the Imperial fleet at least. So or the defenders of Terra that that Imperial fleet, but I don't know. So out of out of these hosts, the only legion we didn't touch upon was the Salamanders. Is there any host here you feel could uh, fit any of these or uh, could fit the salamanders? I feel Hmm. like the salamanders are like the moral opposite end of the spectrum from the dark angels. Cause they're one of the only legions concerned with civilian casualties. Whereas the first legion is all about like eradicating and irradiating worrying about human settlements. Hmm. A far, far second. Because they're, 
they're not even concerned with compliances most of the time. They're about destroying the things that may threaten compliant, compliant worlds. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but yeah, you could pull you could pull line breakers and vanguard warriors out of the host of crowns for them, um, maybe. But they're not like I can't think of an instance where there's a big honor like they're big on honor duels or anything like that. But Jason does bring up a point that like they're the they're the opposite of the the dark angels. Hmm. I'm I am woefully inadequate on my salamanders lore. Like I, I don't actually know what their tactics are. I mean, other than I I think they have a lot of you know, like uh you know, flamers sort of we- <laughs> melt a weaponry flamers and they can melt-a. flamers and they can withstand a lot of um, but you know what I feel like is that something that I'm just ignorant of or has it just not been explored in the lore? Don't forget, it's also a hammer, Dave. Um, oh, and and hammers, yeah, yeah, and hammers and so, fire so, drakes. Ugh. So, are they siege breakers? Are they like? Is that what they do? I, part of me feels like, and again, we may need to, we may need to do a deep dive on salamanders yeah. one of these days, and maybe next pull season. in Robbie. <laughs> yeah, next season, salamanders. Um, but but I feel like they're they they are the antithesis of, of good guy in that and there's just a lot of fire. Um but I could be wrong. <laughs> I mean, whatever. We're showing our ignorance here, guys. Let's let's close up this episode. Quick, quick, quick. <laughs> Thanks again. We to, only care about our own legions. <laughs> and, uh, any last statements before I wrap it up? think that's it for me i thought we'd just go into uh little housekeeping little housekeeping yeah yep so like on our uh, facebook page which you can find us at facebook.com forward slash rr30k podcast uh see we mentioned back uh two weeks ago yeah there's a the comment from uh anton and excuse me if i butcher this last name um Excelius, I want to say, uh, he brought up some uh, some decent points that had uh, Dave and Jason and everybody else in the cast actually kind of thinking about. And uh, the first one was, uh, and this is based off of our last episode, the idea that the Emperor made a Faustian bargain, um, bargain with the Chaos Gods to create the Parliament. Uh, the Primarchs, has anyone besides Chaos and their ilk, known liars and truth twisters, said anything supporting this theory? Um, so in this case, uh, some of the things we talked about were, first, Magnus remarks on it and talks about it in A Thousand Sun, and then I think there's even a scene where the Emperor on Moloch passes through the, the gate there into the realm of Chaos to steal knowledge. And I'm trying to think of, and I and I think those are our two main sources, and we we even point them out in our comments. But right, it's it's I think it's vengeful spirit. It's fairly early yeah. on in the Horus Heresy, um, where Horus goes to Moloch to go essentially retrace the footsteps of the Emperor after he's been wounded on Davin. Right, he sort of right. gets the sort of gets the. Uh, 
you know, the, the chaos flash. paddles of life. Um, <laughs> he just gets the, yeah, he gets but the I flash. Think a, I think Abaddon actually brings it up because, because he's guarding the portal while Horus goes through is that Horus comes back out and he looks like he's fought a thousand wars. And I, I feel like there's a line and I'll have to look for it. Um, but, but they, they, they talk about, and Horus talks about how he fought for, for his his pa- power from the gods of chaos, whereas his father did not. Um, so so that's something to think about. Well, I I think the important point here is that we know the emperor went through the gates, the portal, on Moloch to uh, meet with the chaos gods. Right? They played poker. Uh, the emperor cheated. Got the knowledge to make the the primarchs and uh, and and sort of uh, you know where all that is. I, yeah, I would be sort of remiss to say, but I think that's an that's that's an important source. But uh, Jason, you had a couple other sources too. Uh, the first one and that always came to mind for me was uh, Magnus uh, during Thousand Suns he talks about the entities that his father made and reneged on bargains with that he had spoken with one of them as well. Now he doesn't call it a chaos God, but of course we know. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. We know everyone knows. (laughs) Come on, Magnus. Just. And, and so our, our listener brings up a good point. How can you trust Magnus? But I feel like even at that point in, it's not quite the heresy when Ma- I think Magnus talks about this. Mm-hmm. I think you can trust him in this case because up until the wolves um, attacking Prospero, Magnus only has the Imperium at heart or the the his father's best wishes at heart. So there's no reason to to suspect anything. I'd agree with most. I wouldn't go that far, but yeah. I- as far as well, Magnus's motivations, but yes, at that point he was not really a traitor in the sense of the Horus heresy. I mean, what is I a mean, traitor <laughs> really? If we're going to get into it, isn't the emperor kind of the original traitor? That's another episode for another time, I think. Right. <laughs> but, and also he also, uh, Anton mentions, we were discussing last episode regarding, uh, Mars and, Apparently, uh, pre-Imperial Mars did constantly raid Terra for resources and possible Archaeotech. Um, I didn't see exactly where that was mentioned at. Yeah. Well, I'll take and, your word and, for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, we know that Mars has been sending out exploratory fleets for hundreds of years before the emperor gets his ass to act together and actually goes to Mars and like, and like brokers a deal with them. So mm-hmm. it, it would make perfect sense that Mars needs resources. Cause Mars doesn't have a whole lot of resources. Well, there's this big blue orb where there's a bunch of barbarians fighting each other. Yeah. They're not going to notice. Let's go ahead and steal their iron and shit. Um, and their moms. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Cause Mars needs moms guys. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God damn it, Jesse. <laughs> oh. Um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's completely believable, and I'm sure it's in 27 different white dwarfs, you know, um, or any of the, the Horace Heresy books, to be honest. Yeah. Also, I'd like to think, um, this is really late, but uh, Tom, I don't know, I, I won't give your last name out, uh, sent us a bunch of pictures of old uh, Index Astartes books, and we will get into them at some point. Sorry, it's been a heck of a past few weeks, and I feel like I've just been in a fever dream. But yes, I see the messages. Thanks again for uh, sending us those uh, screen captures of old white dwarfs. So I appreciate that. Yeah, much appreciated, man. Yeah, no, I think that's it for housekeeping. All right, cool. Once again, thank you all for listening. Um, Facebook and Twitter at forward slash RR30K podcast. You can visit our website, RR30K.com, where you can also find our Battlefleet Heresy Compendium, which is our supplement to Battlefleet Gothic, set in the Age of Darkness. You can follow our Instagram at remembrancers underscore retreat. Follow our Discord server with a link in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you listen to us. In fact, just subscribe on all the all the platforms. We'd appreciate it. We'd really You can find our RSS uh, feed on the link as well. So you can just copy and paste that into whatever you'd like to listen to. Huge shout out to our patrons. It's uh, it's these guys that make this possible and keep us motivated to keep on doing this. Starting with our Legion Praetors, Alex Self, Chris Mack, Jacob Dillon, Gardner.Tree of Woe, Joe from Music City Heresy, Luke Rizzuto, Matthew Boyce, Mr. Baldwick, Nicholas Quenga, Sar Luther. On to our Legion Centurions, Andrew N., Angry Boy, John Christensen, M. Tanzer, Queen Corswain, Scott LeMay, and the original Applesauce. And finally, our Legion Sergeants, Duncan, Emily O'Hare, Garrett Lowe, Mr. Sear, Nick Gillen, The Zoy, and What Do I Call Myself? Again, huge shout-out. Thank you all so much for your patronage. And that's all I have for this episode. Thank you all for listening. We had a great time. Bye for now. (laughs) Take it easy, guys. Have a good night.